And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I want to invite you to join me in your copy of God's Word in the book of 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2. So grateful for Hunter stepping in last week and um, sharing while we were out of town. It's a blessing um, to be able to hand the reins to uh, other, other pastors and have them share from God's word. As you find your place there in 1 Peter chapter 2, um, I just want to um, make mention, I know Hunter shared it last week, but just to remind you men that we have a men's conference coming up. Uh, November 11th and 12th, and uh, I promise you, you're not going to want to miss this. Uh, make sure that you get signed up. There's some information in the bulletin. You can go to our website and sign up there. It's not just going to be a, a conference with some lectures or anything like that. This is going to be a, a time where we're going to be able to interact and be challenged from God's Word, and so we want to really invite you to be there with us and experience that at Camp Living Waters. Uh, my friend Kevin Butcher is going to be here from uh, Colorado, and I know uh, you'll be challenged through our time there. So I want to make sure you invite. And, and I just, we just always want to put this out here. If finances are at all an issue, please uh, don't let that stop you from coming. We, we want to make sure that uh, whoever wants to be there uh, can be there. First Peter chapter 2, and I'm going to pick up here in verse 4. We're going to read verses 4 through 10. We're not going to uh, reflect on all of them because this passage talks about Jesus as the cornerstone. And then he's he talks about the building, the, the church that's being built up on the cornerstone. We're going to return to that here in just a couple of weeks. But I want to, I want to just read these verses uh, and follow along as we begin reading 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. And then we're going to look specifically, uh, primarily at verses 6 through 8. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by people but chosen and honored by God, you yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house are being built to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and honored cornerstone, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. So honor will come to you who believe, but for the unbelieving, the stone that the builders rejected, this one has become the cornerstone and a stone to stumble over and a rock to trip over. They stumble because they disobey the word. They were destined for this. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. In this passage here, the Apostle, Paul, or Apostle Peter, I keep saying that, the Apostle Peter uh, switches metaphors. He's just been talking about food, and spiritual milk, and, and now he moves to a building as his choice picture for describing here Jesus and the church. As you read this passage, perhaps it maybe was a little bit jumpy or a little bit choppy for you because... Uh, I don't know what it looks like in your text there, but in mine, it, there's these bold phrases. Well, that's because Peter is quoting from the Old Testament in several places here. In fact, in at least uh, in these first 10 verses of chapter 2, at least 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, uh, 
Six different times he's quoting scripture. In fact, I mean the Old Testament scriptures. In fact, in verse 9, he's pulling from all kinds of different passages. Uh, so that he's, he's making his point based out of the Old Testament, what it has to say about Jesus. And so as we look at uh, verses 6 through 8 today, and then in a couple weeks, we look a little bit about the, the church. We're going to see that, that Peter is pulling from the, the written and revealed word of God to make his point. And, and what we see here in this passage, and you can see here on the screen, is, that, is a picture of a cornerstone. And Jesus is likened to the cornerstone of a building. In, in ancient structures, and, and even today, the foundation is absolutely so important. In fact, the cornerstone would be so important to buildings that were built that, that all kinds of time and effort would be given to making sure that the right t- type of rock was selected. They didn't want anything that was too weak, of course. You, want, you needed a rock that was, that was really strong. And so oftentimes, the time spent making the cornerstone, because it was significantly bigger and it was made out of stronger rock, it would take as much time to make that as it did the rest of the blocks in the foundation, because it was so important that it be, that be extra strong. But not only strong, it needed to be aligned perfectly because it was setting the tone for the the rest of the building. If the cornerstone was off, the rest of the foundation would be off kilter. It couldn't be leaning in too much. It couldn't be leaning out. It had to be plumbed and set perfectly. I remember back when uh, I, I, I did some construction, and, my, and our, when Elise and I were first married, and we, we poured foundations for houses. We did poured basements. And I remember more than once, our, fortunately, I could plead not guilty because they didn't trust me with the tape measure and uh, snapping a line and getting things aligned. But there were more than one time that our foreman got, got the foundation off just a little bit. And I remember having to go back out to these sites and reset forms, sometimes tear down concrete that was still curing and, and re-pour the foundation because it was off base. And the rest of the house would have been off kilter. It would not have been a structurally sound house because it needed a proper foundation. And that's why Peter here likens Jesus to the cornerstone. He says everything else comes out of the cornerstone that is Christ. Everything else is built upon him. And so he uses the Old Testament. In Isaiah 28, 16, this cornerstone he says, I've laid a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone. Isaiah was looking forward to the time of Jesus Christ coming upon whom the church would be built, just like the cornerstone in a building. It's absolutely crucial that Jesus be the cornerstone of the church, that everything in the church and in our lives be built upon him. That's the picture that Peter wants us to see. But he dives into this and he explains in a little bit more detail what we're supposed to see here. So the the first thing that I wrote down is that Jesus, as the cornerstone, is chosen and precious. In verse 6, we see this, for it stands in Scripture. Again, this is a quote from the Old Testament. He says, see I lay in Zion a chosen and honored cornerstone. I love these two descriptive phrases of the the cornerstone that is Jesus Christ. He first of all says chosen, just as if, just as the the cornerstones were selected from the right rock, the strongest, most powerful rock. You You wanted the best foundation possible. He says Jesus Christ is the choice 
cornerstone. He was chosen by God. And then this word chosen, it can mean that which is excellent, that which is the very, very best, the, the, the most the, the, the only one, the exclusive one. We've all been places. Maybe, uh, maybe you're preparing a, a, a meal for some friends and you, you go to the, the meat market and you go to the deli and you want, you want the very best meat. You're not, you're not in the day-old section or the, the stuff that's been reduced. You want to get the choice cut. You want to get the very best for your, your, your friends that you're having over. That, that's the idea here is that Jesus is chosen. He's selected we cannot fathom the worth of Jesus. But it, it uses another word here. In my translation, this Greek word is translated honored. It, it means something that's of considerable worth, valuable, precious. Something that is so important, so beautiful, so, so worthy that a special spotlight is placed upon it. We all have possessions that are especially precious to us. Maybe they're not even all that valuable money-wise, but they're important to you because maybe it was a family heirloom or it's attached to a special memory. I mean, how many times have we heard that, hear stories of someone who's, and maybe you've experienced this, where you had a house fire and, and one of the first things that people try to go for are those, those photographs that can't be replaced. You throw those babies on eBay and you're not going to get any money for them. They're not, they don't have a, a, a lot of significant monetary value attached to them, but they're precious to you. They're valuable to you. Some of you may have safes or safety deposit boxes where you keep things that are especially valuable. We understand what it's like, even if we don't have that many possessions, you understand this idea of, of something that's precious, that's dear to you. This is how Jesus is described. He is the precious cornerstone. He is of more value than we could ever imagine. It's precious in the sight of God. What, what makes Jesus so precious, so honored, so valuable? Do you, you remember at Jesus' baptism, as John the Baptist was taking him into the water? Peter actually writes about this in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 and 18 where he describes his experience of being there and, and seeing what he saw. And it says in the text that the, the, the heavens, the clouds were rent apart. It's the, it's the same Greek word that describes the, the curtain, the veil being rent in two at Jesus' crucifixion. The, the clouds were pulled apart, and he hears this voice from heaven, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. It's easy to pass over something like that. It's easy to pass over a sentence like that without appreciating the value of those words, the significance of those words. The Father says, this is my beloved Son. I, I love that word, beloved, because we read it, you read it in the Song of Solomon, in the expressions of their love for one another. The, the, it carries with it so much value. If you said to someone, hey, I like you, versus if you look at them and say, you are my beloved, you're really ratcheting it up a notch, aren't you? You're saying to me, you're precious, you're valuable, you're esteemed, you're adored. 
The father looks at the son and he says, this is my beloved son. There is nothing in Jesus that causes the father to cringe, to roll his eyes, to turn away. Jesus is the precious cornerstone. The father takes this posture of ongoing, uninterrupted delight in Jesus. Where does that come from? It comes from who he is. You could just do a cursory glance at the scriptures and you can see why the father delights in Jesus. John 6.37 tells that the son obeyed the father perfectly. Matthew 5.17 tells us that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. In 1 Corinthians 15, we see that his resurrection from the dead absorbed death and abolished the sting of death. Read the Gospels and you see his love for the broken in places like Mark chapter 1, verses 40 and 40, 40, 40 through 45. You see his willingness in John 10, 17 to die for his sheep. You see over and again his patience with sinners, his tenderness towards the stubborn. We see in places like Philippians 2, 5 through 11, the humility of Jesus being willing to take on the form of a servant, setting aside his glory and coming to this earth as a man. We see in Hebrews 4, 17 that he was sinless. John 6, 37 tells us that he has the ability, the power to keep his sheep. No one can take them from him, John 10 tells us. And in Revelation 19, we read of his second coming. Everything about Jesus Everything from his nature to his actions is infinitely beautiful. And the father looks at him and says, I am well pleased. What a powerful line. Have you ever had anybody say that to you? I take pleasure in you. I am well pleased with you. Sounds kind of weird to our ears. Because we're not, maybe a lot of us aren't used to that kind of affection. I don't know what kind of parents you had. Maybe you heard this. Could you imagine, I mean, if all of us had heard from our parents, I am well pleased with you. Not just because you had a good day today, not just because you cleaned up your room and did your chores. I am well pleased with you. I love you. You are my beloved. What that would do to our hearts. Oh, my goodness. Jesus heard from his father that in him he was well pleased. During the Great Awakening of the 1700s, one of the sermons that God used to kindle the passionate explosion of his word throughout New England was a sermon by Jonathan Edwards entitled, entitled The Excellency of Christ. Edwards said that his goal in the message was to describe the admirable conjunction of the diverse excellencies of Christ. In modern day terms, that's the idea of just showing how awesome Jesus is by showing the contrasts of his life. And he used Revelation chapter 5, verses 5 and 6 to show how Jesus was both lion and lamb. And he, he used that as a springboard to show how Jesus brought together all of these things that, that seemingly shouldn't belong together. Like that he was uh, infinitely high and yet infinitely low. 
He was infinite justice, yet infinite grace, infinite glory in the lowest humility, infinite majesty, and yet transcendent meekness, deepest reverence toward God, and yet at the same time, equality with God the Father, worthiness of good, and yet the greatest patience under the suffering of evil. He had a great spirit of obedience, and yet at the same time, supreme dominion over heaven and earth, absolute sovereignty, yet perfect resignation, complete self-sufficiency, and yet entire trust and reliance on God. All of these things came together in Jesus because he's infinitely glorious. These things can be true of Jesus, but not of us as human beings, as sinful human beings. These things cannot be spoken of us, but here's here's the great truth that springs out of Jesus' preciousness to the Father. Because of our union with Jesus through Jesus Christ, we are infinitely valuable to God. He looks at us and says, I am well pleased. Even if we've royally messed up today, even if our, our Sunday morning sin count is higher than usual, because of Jesus, the Father looks at us through His Son through his son's righteousness, and says, I am well pleased with my son, therefore, I am well pleased with you. There's this great prayer at the end of John, just before Jesus goes to the cross. We call it the high priestly prayer. It's John 17. If you need to go home this week and read John 17. The first part of the prayer is Jesus praying for the disciples. And the temptations they're going to face and their ongoing ministry. But then, towards the end of his prayer, he says this. I want to say it's like in verse 20. I didn't write it down, but around verse 20, he says, he says this. He says, I'm not, I don't want to pray for these only, my disciples, but I want to pray also for those who will believe on my name through their message. That's us. That's everybody who's trusted in Jesus because of the apostolic message. That's you and I. Jesus prays for us in the last night before he goes to the cross. And one of the things he says in this prayer is he says in verse 24, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am. He wants us to be with him. Great promise and part of the prayer. He says, so that they will see my glory, which you have given me because you loved me before the world's foundation. Jesus just slips in there that The Father has been delighted in the Son since before the earth was created. Now, some of you, I've heard some of your stories, and and, uh, some of you have excellent memories. Like, you have the ability to recall, when you tell a story, even from your childhood, you can recall details, names, places, what people were wearing, smells, and and the weather, and like, it's, it's incredible. I don't have that kind of recall. A lot of my memories are really vague and, and, and stories are just not that interesting because I can't remember all, the, all those nuances. Some of you are really good at that. But I'll tell you what, even those of you who can remember details from way back in your childhood. That, l- listen, as far, even, even the oldest among us whose memories go way, way back, no, none of us go back to before the foundation of the earth. Not even close. We don't even remember, none of us were alive at the foundation of our country. And, and, and he says, even before the universe was created, even before I breathed out the stars and created the seas, there was a delight between the Father and the Son and the Spirit that has been 
for all eternity. It's the greatest love that can possibly exist. Love that flows from the heart of God. The Father, Son, and the Spirit. And I don't understand how this works. It hurts my brain to try to think about the Father and the Son and the Spirit loving each other from before the foundation of the world. But it's true. The highest, greatest possible love. But then verse 26 of John 17, in the same prayer, Jesus goes on to, to pray. He said, I made your name known to them and will continue to make it known. Listen to this. So that the love you have loved me with may be in them and I may be in them. Here's the, one of the beauties of our salvation that not a single one of us understands, even, even in the slightest is that somehow, as part of being invited to God's family, being, being united with Christ, we get caught up into the love of the triune God, the Father, Son, and the Spirit, so that we're not just getting like leftovers. We're not just getting table scraps of the triune God's love. We are enveloped into the love that they have one another for one another. This is profound. This is life-changing stuff. If we understand that, that the Father loves you and me just as much as he loves the Son, can you, can you fathom that kind of love? I can't. There's all the earthly examples I have of, of love in my life. We've, we've let each other down. We've, we've blown it. We've done and said things that are hurtful. We've, being enveloped in the love of the triune God is significant. And so when the Father says to the Son, I am well pleased in you, and you are united to the Son through faith in Jesus Christ and his work on the cross, the Bible says that you're enveloped in that love, and he considers you precious as he does his Son. I, we could talk about that the rest of the day, but I, I talk about a couple of these other verses here. The second thing I want us to see from here is that Jesus is our foundation. That, that's really the, the the, the key point of this text is he's calling him the cornerstone. Jesus is our foundation. We see in Scripture, and we can't spend much time here, but we will circle back to it. Jesus is the foundation of the church. Ephesians 2 tells us that Jesus is the cornerstone, and in him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. He's talking about that, that Jesus Christ must remain the foundation of the church. Listen, my brothers and sisters, this is not a, a club. This is not just a, a community organization where we get together. The, the, the church is the only institution that Jesus Christ has ordained here on this earth. There's a lot of good organizations that we can be a part of that do a lot of great things. But the church is built on Jesus Christ. He is our foundation and must be. Whenever we lose Christ as our foundation, the church will always lose its way. He must remain the foundation. But not only the foundation of the church, but the foundation of our lives. That passage in Ephesians 2.22, it says, In him you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. So as a church and as individuals, we're being built together to be that kind of structure that's rooted and or that's built upon Jesus Christ, that has him as our foundation. Lisa, listen, some of you, you know, is, is, uh, sometimes we, we can look at Jesus as, as someone who comes along with us. Like, uh, you know, some of you, you may like to hike, or maybe when you go out to your deer blind, 
uh, this fall, you're going to bring a backpack with stuff that you want to have out there. Maybe you've got some extra ammo. You most definitely have some snacks in there. Maybe some hand warmers if you don't have a heater in your blind. And, and some other little goodies, maybe some reading material or a good, good pillow for taking a nap. But you, you're going to pick this backpack up and you're going to carry it out in the wee hours of the morning or in the late afternoon to bring out to your blind with you. Some of us look, as, like, we look at Jesus like that. Like when I really need him or when I'm going somewhere where I think I might get into some trouble or he might be extra handy, I grab that backpack that's got Jesus in it and I throw it over my, pack, my back and I, I take it with me and yeah, maybe I need it that day, maybe I need uh, to pray and talk to him or I'm going through some hard things, I'm really glad I got that backpack with me. And then we get home and we toss it in the, in the side, by the side or maybe put it in the garage and, and it's there until we really feel like we need it again. That, that's not the picture of a New Testament Christian. A New Testament Christian does not just bring Jesus along. Our lives must be built upon Jesus. He is the cornerstone. He is the foundation. If we build our lives, just like the parable Jesus told of the guy who built his house on the sand, everything else is shaky. Everything else is, is poor, poor foundation for building a structure. What we build our life upon will determine everything else about the course of your life. Just like a poorly laid cornerstone can throw the whole building off, a poor foundation spiritually will throw our entire lives off kilter. My wife and I, when we travel, we, well, just to put it simply, we like looking at old stuff. Uh, we, we like to look at, at old buildings. We like to find old structures and, and try to guess how old they are and then see if we can find a date somewhere on the cornerstone or up at the, at the top uh, near the peak. And, and we love seeing old architecture. It's incredible. And, and sometimes, though, you're driving through, maybe it's, maybe it's a building, but oftentimes this will happen with old houses. You, maybe you're driving through Ohio and you'll find some really old, beautiful brick farmhouses. You can tell that they just put a lot of work into these, into these homes and they're just a, a thing of beauty. But then over the years, you can tell, you'll come across some of them and you can see that they've been added on. And oftentimes, the, the additions, they're nowhere near the kind of beauty in time and attention that's been poured in, that was put into the original. And so they, they detract from it. There's, you know, maybe they had some adult kids that stayed with them, or maybe mother-in-law moved in, or they just had a big family, and they realized, okay, we need some indoor plumbing, so we're going to throw this on here and this on here. And all of a sudden, you got this kind of cobbled-together, goofy-looking structure that's never quite as beautiful as the original. Listen, we can't do this in Christianity. We can't add Jesus to our lives we can't just throw him in there when we need it. Turning to Jesus is not about changing your mind, uh, changing your beliefs, adding a new set of doctrines. It's a cre complete rebuilding from the ground up with an entirely new foundation. Jesus Christ must remain the foundation of the church. He must remain the foundation of our lives. And so the last thing I want to point out from this passage is a warning and a promise. In verses 7 and 8, Peter here Using the Old Testament issues a promise and a warning. We'll start with the warning first so we can finish with the encouraging news. The first warning, the warning of the passage, the first thing here is, is don't trip. He, look, he says in verse, uh, verse 7, So honor will come to you who believe, but for the unbelieving, the stone that the builders rejected, this one has become the cornerstone. 
a stone, and a stone to stumble over and a rock to trip over. They stumble because they disobey the word. And they were destined for this. The, the cornerstone lays at the foundation of a building or structure. And it sits at the ground level. And so Peter, Peter sticks with this metaphor of the cornerstone. And he says, for some, it can be an important foundation. For others, it's that rock that you don't see when you're walking along and you trip over. We've all tripped on stuff. Some of us do it a lot. I mean, some of us do it in broad daylight with things that are obviously right there in, in front of us. We've all had those times in the middle of the night, right, where we're trying to find our way to the bathroom and uh, a, a perfectly well-placed Lego brings you to your knees, you know? Um, <laughs> there's no pain like a 1 a.m. Lego pain, I'll tell you what. <laughs> I remember when, when I was uh, pouring concrete one day, I, I literally stumbled over the foundation. I, we were, the, the, the crew in front of us had come and poured the footings for this wall, and they, they had uh, 18 inches of rebar sticking vertically out of these, these footings. And I remember that we were, it was early in the morning, and we were uh, trying to get all, the, all of our panels down there to start setting the wall and get everything going. And, and I was hurrying, not paying attention, and... Uh, I, I walked past this footing and I stumbled and one of those pieces of rebar just came right across my leg and laid it wide open. I still have a gorgeous scar to this day if anybody wants to see it someday. Uh, um, all because that, that thing got in my way. I stumbled over something I didn't see, over something I wasn't paying attention to. But here, the stumbling is different. It's, it's an intentional stumbling. He says, he says it's an intentional rejection of the cornerstone. They looked at this foundation stone and they said, we don't want it. Take it back. This building material is insufficient. That's how Jesus was treated. And to some, he became, the text says, a stone to stumble over and a rock to trip over. But what some people embraced and made their cornerstone, many others stumbled over the same rock. What to, uh, what to some was their foundation, to others became a point of detestation. It's interesting. I think, I think sometimes we have the idea with Jesus that if he showed up around here today, came and walked down Clare, the streets of Clare, and started talking to people, or came up to Harrison and sat down in a cafe or diner and started talking to people, that if people could just, just meet him and just, you see who he is, you see how nice he is and how loving and friendly and kind he is, everybody would just welcome him. Like, have you ever had a friend like that? Like, maybe somebody had a bad experience with them. You're like, you know, if you sat down with them, if you really got to know them, you, you're like trying to convince them, seriously, you'll like my friend. They're awesome. And they're like, eh, I don't think so. And they're like, no, no, seriously, you just got to get to know them. Once you get their sense of humor, you'll really like them. Like we're trying to sell, sell that friend to somebody. We've all probably been there a little bit. You just got to get to know them. Sometimes we think that Jesus is like that. If people just really got to know him a little bit, then, then they would really want him. Here's the deal. They had a chance to get to know him. What was the, the by and large response with the people that met him? They didn't want him. There's a reason Jesus said the way to me is narrow. A lot of people, in fact... Uh, I think I wrote it down here. Uh, in Matthew 13, it says, He went to his hometown and began to teach them in the synagogue. And then verse 57 says, And they were offended by him. In his hometown. The things that Jesus said didn't sit right with the majority 
of the people. And if we stop and think about it, and again, like, we oftentimes see our, like, that's, that's those out there who are offended by Jesus. I'm a Christian. I'm here at church. I'm, I'm, I'm showing up. We're singing the worship songs. I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm here. But I wonder sometimes if, if Jesus came to us today and said the kinds of things he said and did the kinds of things he did, how many of us would be like, eh, this isn't the Jesus I thought he was? How many of us would, would tap out? Like We like the Jesus who comes alongside the sinners, who comes alongside the hurting, the broken, the, pe- the people that really needed healing. We'd love to see that. But how many of us want to hear things like, you can't serve God and money, or that it's nearly impossible for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven? Who of us wants to hear Jesus say, like he said in Matthew 18, that you need to take sin so seriously that you may need to cut off appendages if they cause us to sin? You would take drastic efforts to give up things that draw you away from Jesus. Who wants to hear Jesus that, when he says that you can't be his disciple if you don't take up your cross and follow him? Or when he says in John 14, 6, that he's the only way to the Father. Or in Matthew 5, 44, that we have to love our enemies. And on and on we could go. You see, the people that stumbled, the people that had the, the biggest problem, think about this for a second, who were they? Who were they? They were the religious leaders, right? I don't think most of us read the Gospels and read about the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and be like, oh, that's, that's kind of talking about me. They're like the bad guys, the whipping boys that Jesus is like laying into. And we're like, <laughs> look at that. Who, who would be the religious people today? I mean, are you in church almost every Sunday? Do you tithe? They all did. I wonder sometimes if the Jesus that we worship, the Jesus that we think we're building our life on is the Jesus of the New Testament. Certainly something to pray over and give ourselves attention to is the Jesus that, that I'm worshiping, the Jesus of the New Testament. I'll tell you this, I'll give you a hint. If, you're never off- if you read the Gospels and you're never offended, you're not worshiping the Jesus of the New Testament. The Jesus of the New Testament is all about ripping down our idols, getting to the heart of our sin, calling us to a spirit of humility and servanthood. At some point, if the things that Jesus says and does doesn't rub you the wrong way, or like, ooh, that stings a bit. He's talking about me. If we never have these thoughts, we're not, we're not reading about the same Jesus that we're worshiping. You see, we can build our own foundation and put our cornerstone in there of this, of this God or this Jesus that we've fashioned after our likeness that lets me do the things that I want to do and is okay with the idols that I have in my life. Let us take great care to make sure that we're building our foundation upon the Jesus of the Bible. I mentioned that this stumbling is not accidental. 1 Peter 2.8 says, they stumble when they disobey the word. It's ignoring the scriptures. Let's finish with the promise, just briefly here, the promise. He says in verse 6, 
that at the end of verse 6, the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. So honor will come to you who believe. What a great promise. That if we've trusted in Christ and we've built our lives upon him as the one true foundation of our lives, on that last day, we will not have to experience shame in his presence. For those who have had Jesus Christ as their cornerstone, we won't have to hang our heads when we stand before Christ. We will not be put to shame. All of us have experienced shame in our lives. Maybe it's shame as the result of someone picking on us, pointing out perceived flaws or inconsistencies or failures. We've been laughed at. And it's an awful feeling to be shamed. Some of us have experienced what I would call the biblical shame. There's such a thing as biblical shame when we're convicted over sin and God's spirit speaks to us and says, you shouldn't be proud of that in your life. That's conviction and that's, that's good shame. There's the bad shame over, bad shame says I'm bad. Good biblical shame says I've done something sinful and I need to repent and receive God's forgiveness. There's a difference. Bad shame says who you are at the core of your person, what you look like, you're, you're bad. You're, you're not acceptable. That's the kind of shame that our enemies sell in us and that's, that's no good. We don't listen to that. That shouldn't be a part of our our relationship with Jesus Christ. But when we've built ourselves, built our foundation on, on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ, we've trusted in him. He says, all those who believe in him will never be put to shame. What a promise. What a glorious, encouraging promise. Let me finish with this. How do you know your life is being built on the cornerstone? the one true foundation of Jesus Christ. Tim Keller suggests this. He said, here's one way to test. When the waves come and beat against the cornerstone, cornerstone is that part of your life where if it shakes and crumbles, then everything crumbles. And at that point, you realize that you've built yourself, built your life upon something that's not Jesus it's looking at what are the non-negotiables in your life. If you say, everything but this, God, you can't take this away. We're cool as long as I have this. Maybe another way of saying is our idols. What is it that God would, could take away from your life and you'd be like, I'm out. Forget this. This is too high of a cost. I'm done. Your health, your kids, your bank account. What, what is it? Is there something in your life that God could take away and it would utterly devastate your life? The only answer to that question would be Jesus. If God, can, if God takes away Jesus from us, that should be the only thing that utterly devastates and destroys our life. And the great news is he's not going to do it. He will never take Jesus away. In fact, for those who have trusted him, he says, you're in my hand and nobody can take you out. Life's waves will, will, will beat it, our, our lives. And, and, if, and if our foundation is the wrong foundation, and God in his love, make no mistake about this, it is the love of God that will root out wrong foundations, idols in our lives. Don't you dare for a second think that it's God's anger, his injustice, 
or his malevolence up there trying to take away these things that are so important. If they become an idol to you, if they become a rotten foundation, God in his love will root them out so that you can build your life upon Jesus Christ and him alone. Is our life, our church, built upon the one cornerstone, the only cornerstone, Jesus Christ? I want to pray, but if you need prayer for any reason, there'll be a few of us up here who would love to pray with you. If you've never made Jesus the cornerstone of your life, we'd love to talk to you about him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would show us what it looks like to live lives where Jesus is our foundation. You tell us in your word, Jesus said, blessed is the one who's not offended by me. God, I pray that as as you root out those lousy foundations, those shaky foundations, those sandy foundations, that, that we would receive that as a gift of your love. As you long to see our lives built upon the only sure foundation. My hope is built on nothing less but Jesus' blood and righteousness. I pray, God, that that might be the prayer of our hearts. Now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish and with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory and majesty and power and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. May God bless you this week.